coming to you since 1997 on KKUP Radio with over 250 guests and still going strong in their 12th year of weekly broadcasting. The International Taz and Paula Show brings to you expansive, engaging, and groundbreaking intensity on radio and now on the Internet airwaves today. Listen live every Thursday or visit Embracing Mother Earth's archives, exclusive articles, ask questions, and receive actual answers from guests anytime at TazAndPaulaShow.com. Taz and Paula's special guests are experts coming from all walks of life, energizing our lives with a passion that inspires and teaches us with each of their compelling personal life journeys, with roots from ancient wisdom and bridging it with modern science. We hope today's show touches the wisdom of your heart. And now, Taz and Paula. Well, hello out there, everyone. We are so honored to have New York Times best-selling author Greg Braden back with us today. He's internationally renowned as a pioneer in bridging science and spirituality. And today... He'll be sharing findings of his many journeys. Plus, we'll be talking to him about his newly released book, Deep Truth. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula. And I'm Taz. For 25 years now, Greg, we've been following your journeys as you searched high mountain villages, visited remote monasteries, and you've even found treasures such as forgotten texts and uncovered their timeless secrets. Your work has been featured on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, the Sci-Fi Channel, ABC, and um, NBC. And now you say a new world is merging before our eyes. The human race has the choice to leverage this cosmic time zone to raise ourselves to a higher level of consciousness and civilization. Is there more? Well, let's get our popcorn. Well, Greg has not only detailed the science behind fractal time, but he also points the way how we can properly prepare for the coming time zone and contribute our energy towards seeing the best possible outcome. To date, Greg's discoveries have led to such paradigm-shattering books as God Code, Secrets of the Lost Mode of Prayers, The Divine Matrix, Fractal Timing. Today, his work is published in 17 languages and 33 countries and shows us beyond any reasonable doubt that the key to our future lies in the wisdom of our past. Greg's latest book, Deep Truth, Igniting the Memory of Our Origin, History, Destiny, and Fate, changes the way we think about everything from our personal relationships to civilization itself. When the facts become clear, he says our choices will become obvious. Hi, Greg. Are you there? Yes, we are. Well, it are, are seems we like live? we. Yes, we are. Well, it's so, good for me to know that. <laughs> <laughs> we're well. It seems like every time you come with us, it's like we're on another planet. But today, we're going to be talking about this planet. And, ah, um, okay. We, well, I apologize. The I, I had two pieces of. Um, Information, one said you were calling me, and then the other one said I was calling you. So I thought I'd go with the I call you option. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you <laughs> you picked that one. Well, we welcome you back on our show. You're our favorite guest by far. Oh, and... there you have got, so you got some really great guests on there. So you can have lots of favorites, I hope. <laughs> yes, we do. We, we do. Yeah, thank well, you we... so much, though. We were just talking about your newest book, uh, Deep Truth, Igniting the Memory of Our Origin, History, Destiny, and Fate. Uh, what made you write this book? Well, um, I, I'm not sure what you had said to our listeners before I came on, so I'm, I'm just going to start you know, with the very basics. I, I know people are listening to this program right now. Uh, if you're listening to this program, I know that you know this is no ordinary time in the history of our, our country, certainly our nation, uh, on our, our, our world. Um, and it's not our imagination. The best minds of our time are, are telling us that, in fact, we're living uh, something that's never happened before. And what they're telling us is that it never have so many people, now a global population of 7 billion-plus people, been faced with, with so many simultaneous crises. And each crisis, 
of such magnitude. Never have so many people had to solve so many problems so quickly. Uh, some of the, the crises are saying we've got maybe 12 to 18 months to figure this stuff out when it comes to a collapsing global economy, when it comes to uh, how we're going to solve the problems in the Middle East. We don't have a lot of time. So when we talk about 12 to 18 months, that's not much time to change the way that we have thought of our relationship to the world and ourselves and solving our problems in the past. And that's precisely what what this book is all about. So the <clears throat> the title, Deep Truth, um, one of the things uh, that I discovered, uh, the book came out in the fall of uh, 2011. And one of the first things I found is the word truth in the title of the book means different things to different people. <laughs> and <laughs> sure for, some people <clears throat> for some people, they, they said, you know, what gives you the right, Greg, to, to put the word truth in the title of your of your book? So I'd like to begin maybe uh, just a little bit about where that title came from. Sure. Um, it, you know, it's interesting. Usually what happens is I I, uh, I determine the title first, and then the book is written to support that title so that all the information that, that crosses my my desk, um, I can pick and choose the information that supports the, the title and the theme of the book. That didn't happen with this book. This book was almost finished before we ever knew what the title was going to be. I'd wake up every morning and I'd say, wow, what's the book going to be called? And my publisher was really having a hard time. They said, how do we how do we let people know about a book that has no title? And uh, it was when I was researching uh, the book, I was reading a biography uh, of Albert Einstein. And there was a conversation that Albert Einstein was having with his friend and colleague, uh, Niels Bohr, uh, the Nobel Prize winning physicist of uh, the 20th century, one of the, the pioneers in quantum theory. And this this was in the mid-1940s. So, you know, it was a different world then, uh, Paul. It was the new discoveries that were coming out, being published every month that were changing the way that scientists thought about the world. And they had to keep changing their position on on what they thought was true and what was not true. And this is where Niels Bohr made this statement. He said, and this is a quote, he said, it is the hallmark of any deep truth that its negation is also a deep truth, end of quote. And when I read that, what he was saying was that when new discoveries overturn what we once held to be true about ourselves and the world, then the new discoveries themselves become the new deep truths. And I said, well, that's got to be the title for this book because that is precisely what this book is is all about. <clears throat> For 150 years, science, the best science of our time, has led us to believe that we have a relationship to the world, uh, and they've defined that relationship in, in very specific parameters. And we've built our lives, the systems of uh, that we've come to depend upon, the economic systems, the, the corporate systems, the way we share vital resources, the way we think about healing, our bodies, the way that we think about solving our problems, they're all based on the way we think about ourselves and, and our relationship to the world uh, through the lens of these truths that science put forth over the last 150 years. The, the consequence of that thinking is the world that we have today. And while there are some things that are working really well in the world, we all know a lot of things are, are breaking down very quickly. If we look closely, the only things that are breaking are the things that are no longer sustainable, the ways of thinking, uh, the ways of, of living in, in, in the world today. So this book is about the new discoveries uh, that overturn 150 years of scientific thinking and uh, and give us very good reasons to think differently and solve our problems differently today. So that that's my long answer to your short question about why I wrote that book. Well, Taz is with us also today, so I just want hey, to let you Taz, know. Hey, Taz, how are you doing? Yeah, hi. Well, I was, um, you know, I was listening. Thank you. Great to have you with us. I just was wondering, I was listening to your answer, and I thought, after you wrote this book, how have you changed after writing it? I mean, you did a lot of analyzation and the whole thing, and maybe there were highlights of this book that you never anticipated it arriving on the page. But after you got done with it, you know, what have your thought patterns changed? And, and you know, how has it changed you? Well, you know, Taz, it's a good question. And, and for me, um, 
my life is constantly changing, but I, I wouldn't attribute that to to what I've written in the book because the, the changes had to be in place for me to, before I could write the book. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't write a book about something that you know that I, I first wasn't aware of and secondly didn't believe in. But the, the the changes that we're talking about, I mean, these are they're called the perennial questions uh, of of life and of civilization. Uh, my dear friend and colleague and your neighbor, Dr. Bruce Lipton, uh, I know you've had on the program talks about these the perennial questions. Every civilization has these fundamental questions. And for a lot of people, they say, you know, what does that have to do with anything? You know, what what do those questions have to do with my bank account or with whether I get a job or not? And the, and the answer is they have everything to do with it. So the, the questions, the fundamental questions, where does life come from? That's, that's at the bottom of, uh, of the little pyramid of perennial questions. The next question, where does human life come from? Uh, above that is the question of, what is our relationship to our bodies? And above that, what is our relationship to the world around us? Uh, above that is what is our relationship to the past? And above that is, is how do we go about solving our problems? So the way we answer the questions that I've just stated, the way we answer those becomes the lens through which we think of ourselves and our relationship to the world. Um, the, the science, 150 years of science, has led us to believe that life is is a random occurrence, that human life is a random occurrence, that we're separate from our bodies, that we're separate from the earth, that civilization is a one-time deal and we're at the top of the heap, and that we solve our problems by following the laws of nature based on competition, survival of the strongest, in Darwin's words. And the consequences of, of that thinking uh, are are the world that we have today. And we can see where those systems based in that thinking are breaking down. They're no longer sustainable in the presence of, uh, of the world as, as it's changing. So the good news is that new discoveries have overturned every one of those ways of thinking, every one of those ideas that I was taught when I was in school, you were taught when you were in school. Uh, and we'll go through, we'll identify five false assumptions specifically. I'll do that here in, in just a couple of minutes. Well, the, the indigenous the people, the indigenous indigenous people knew what you're talking about right now. Our relationship with the planet. And but they knew some, but they they didn't know all of it. And this is this is where it gets interesting, Taz, because if we if we rely only, I'm sorry, Paula, if we rely only on um, on indigenous wisdom or only on spiritual traditions, they don't have all the answers. And if we rely only on science, science doesn't have all the answers. Uh, a lot of people don't like to hear that. They believe that science does, or that the the indigenous wisdom does. Um, in my experience, they are both good, and yet they're both incomplete. And so this is my question. When I was working as a defense uh, engineer in the last years of the Cold War, my question was what would happen if rather than following one path or another, what if we honored both of them? What if we married all of the work, all of uh, the learning, all the wisdom of humankind? What if we married the best science of today? with the the wisdom of 5,000 years of uh, spiritual and indigenous traditions, where would that lead us? The bulk of my adult life has been spent answering that question. And what I believe is happening is that if, if we allow ourselves to honor the great wisdom of our time without judging it, what we do is is we merge those two ways of knowing into something that's greater than either one can be alone. And in that we give ourselves the evolutionary edge that our ancestors didn't have. That's why we can survive many of the changes that uh, other civilizations in the past may not have. So uh, and I think it's it's important to think uh, from it from, from that context. So the good news is new discoveries, peer-reviewed scientific discoveries, have in fact overturned many of the things you were taught when you were in school, I was taught when I was in school. Uh, many of our listeners have young people in school today. Uh, they're still being taught these these assumptions. New discoveries are telling us they're not true. So you'd mm-hmm. think that would be that would be welcomed. And, but here's the reality: is that there is a, a reluctance, and in some cases an outright resistance, uh, to share this material in the mainstream. So mainstream media, for example, mainstream television documentaries, uh, mainstream classrooms, mainstream textbooks, and there are a lot of reasons for the resistance. And the fact is that it is there. And I, I just want to clarify this before we go any further. When we talk about the classrooms, it's not the teacher's fault. Uh, in 
in many of the Western countries, and I, I know this is true in the United States, it's not true in some other countries, that each teacher is bound by a covenant to the state within which they teach. They can only teach curricula that's been approved by the school board for the state. So if the school board has not approved these new peer-reviewed scientific discoveries to be shared in the classroom, the teachers are required by law to teach obsolete science. So we have young people learning the false assumptions of science that have led to the crises that we're living today, believing that we live in a world of struggle, a world of competition, that we're separate from our bodies, we're separate from the earth, uh, that civilization is a one-time deal and, and we're at the top of the heap. And that thinking is, is the way they're, they're going into life trying to solve the problems that we're leaving behind. Now, of course, there are exceptions, and that's changing in some places, but to a large extent, uh, this is what we're up against now. So it would be important at any time, but it's crucial now because of the context. The context is that we, this generation, this time in history, we're facing the greatest number of crises, whether we're talking about climate change or the collapse of uh, a global economic system, uh, whether we're talking about the, the disappearance of vital resources like fresh water, our ability to grow food uh, in the northern hemisphere is diminishing, the energy that people rely on and the, the sources of that energy uh, uh, are, are changing very quickly. So all of those things make this even more important now. The way we think about ourselves, our relationship to the world, is the lens through which we're going to solve all those problems. Well, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead of time on ahead on this, but you talk about choice points. So um, could you explain what a choice point actually is, and are we in that right now? Well, choice point is a term that was coined from a previous book. Uh, the book was called Fractal Time, uh, and that book uh, was released in '09. It was the, the book that identifies what our modern science is only beginning to acknowledge, but our indigenous ancestors did understand and, and have very, very uh, right, uh, is the fact that our lives are based in cycles. Um, nature is based in cycles. And th those cycles apply to civilization. They apply to the events in our lives as well. And when we merge the ideas of, of fractal patterns, so the patterns of life, uh, with the ideas of cycles, what it, it begins to say to us is that the patterns in our lives, the conditions, uh, repeat again and again and again on a personal level, on a global level. They repeat in our relationships with other people of love and loss. They repeat in hurt. They repeat in our relationships with success and abundance or with lack uh, and scarcity. They repeat on a global level in terms of cycles of war and peace. So that's what that book was all about. And when we talk about the cycles, uh, what our own science now has discovered about cycles is this. Each, each cycle, no matter how long or how short it is, they can all be described the same way. And that way is, is by stating that they begin, every cycle begins with an event that sets into motion a pattern of energy that will repeat again and again and again until something changes that pattern. Each cycle ends, and before the next one begins, there's a place in between where neither one exists. And the place in between uh, is what is now called the choice point. That is a, a term that was coined uh, by a physicist in the 1950s, uh, Princeton University, a place where our choices are, we can always choose, but there are places where the deck is stacked in our favor and our choices become even more potent. So the, the place where one cycle ends and the next cycle begins, the space between, uh, is called the choice point. And the, the length of that choice point, how long that choice point is, is directly linked to how long the cycle is. So, for example, we're living uh, the last years of a rare and mysterious cosmic cycle. 5,125 years long, exactly 1,872,000 days long, exactly. Uh, our choice point before the next cycle begins is a 36-year choice point. It began in 1980 and it ends in 2016. So we are nearing the end of, uh, of a global and cosmic choice point for how we live our lives. Um, but even if you're not into any of that, the, the idea of cycles and choice points, it, uh, it works in our personal lives as well. And, and the book uh, actually offers a calculator 
to help us understand how to calculate personal as well as global cycles so we can apply apply these ideas in our lives. So for people may not listeners may not be familiar with uh, the term choice point. That's where it comes from and the little little background of uh, of what it is. So to answer your question, yes, we are living the last year. This is now 2012. Uh, we're we're over halfway through and well into uh, a, a choice point uh, between cosmic cycles based on Earth's location in space. So our ancestors somehow knew about this long before science ever confirmed it. Um, and a rare alignment occurred on August 11th, 3114 B.C. That's the biblical era. Uh, and that's when our cycle began. That rare alignment now is repeating for the only first time since uh, 3114 B.C. It's repeating uh, on December 21st, 2012. But I, I have to say as a scientist, I'll be very clear with our listeners, I see no scientific evidence for a lot of bad things happening on that day. Uh, it's more about a window of time uh, of change. And I am less concerned about the physical changes in our world because we have gotten through them in the past, and I think we're doing a reasonably good job now. Uh, I'm, I'm very concerned about the political, social, and personal changes. How do we treat one another as we go through uh, the, the changes in the world, as the climate changes following natural cycles and the weather changes? And our ability to grow food changes. How do we treat one another? As uh, our our cycle of uh, where and how we create energy to fuel a planet, as that changes, how do we treat one another? As new diseases crop up uh, all over the world that we have no medical cure for, or we have a medical cure for some, do we share them? Uh, how do we support others? I mean, these are the kinds of things that the book Deep Truth uh, really lays a foundation that as we change the way we think about ourselves and our relationship to the world, it changes the way we answer the questions that I'm asking right now. Craig, I, uh, you know, many people now are um, experiencing uh, the reopening of, of viewpoints in, in every area of their life. Um, uh, you know, people are being stretched and stretched, and we know that. Um, but I, I question over the last two or three months. Um, We've had a lot of people make connection with us. And after the solar eclipses over the last few months and the, and the energy shifts, people have shared with us how they have experienced an inner mental shift right on the spot from one thought to another, from a, from a negative to a positive point, and, 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 learn, and experiencing at that time how they could work with their families in different ways that they never thought of before. And I really, um, I, I'm sure that you probably are hearing this too, or maybe. And and if you are, is this like we're living in an initiation chamber on Earth at this time? What do you think? Well, uh, I, I haven't spoken to the people that you've spoken to, so I, I I cannot respond to what they said to you specifically. Mm -hmm. What I can say is this: the the best science of our time is confirming what our indigenous and ancient and most cherished traditions told us in in the language of their time. In other words, 3,000 years ago, they used the only language they knew to tell us we were going to go through some changes. And a lot of people have interpreted their languages as something very scary. Uh, what our own science is showing is that Earth's relationship to the sun, uh, and so those eclipses are part of that, Earth's location in space, changes over time, the tilt, the angle, the wobble uh, of our orbit changes over time. And as that change happens, it does, in fact, it changes our relationship to the sun, how much energy we get from the sun. And scientists, uh, our own science now, we talk about this uh, in the live programs, I talk about it a little bit in the book, uh, are linking uh, social change directly to those solar cycles. Uh, Princeton University did an amazing study uh, from the year 1750 until the year 1920. Uh, they were able to chart solar cycles, the ebb and the flow, the even rhythm. It looks like a sine wave, a nice, beautiful, even sine wave of uh, the rise and fall of solar energy reaching the Earth during these solar cycles during, during this period of time. Uh, and right above that chart of the ebb and flow of the energy from the sun, 
they were able to, to place a chart, another chart, of the ebb and flow of significant human events. They weren't all bad. They weren't all good. They were just big. So cycles of war, cycles of peace, cycles of social unrest, cycles of innovation, uh, new discoveries in technology, innovations in, uh, in art, uh, in music. All of these things were factored in. Um, and when you put the two charts together, I mean, when I show them in a the live audience, you can hear the gasp throughout the, the room because we have to say there's a correlation. When the energy from the sun rises, that's when new innovative things happen for humans. And when the energy from the sun uh, uh, ebbs, uh, then we see the, the same thing happen in, uh, in human experience. So it suggests, and then studies from that have gone on to suggest that that in periods of, uh, of of peak solar activity, what it does is it changes the magnetic fields of the Earth and of the Moon, and we all know we're linked to those. Women, you know it because every 28 days your body uh, goes through a cycle that's direct, directly linked to through the magnetic fields to to lunar cycles. So we're aware of that cycle, but there are other cycles that are, are more subtle. We're only beginning to understand, and they're finding that <clears throat> social unrest is directly linked. Uh, to these solar cycles as well. So, for example, solar cycle 22, right in the middle, the peak of solar cycle 22 is, is, was Gulf War One. It happened exactly in the middle. Uh, it culminated with that war. Uh, solar cycle 23, September 11, 2001, culminated exactly in the peak of that solar cycle. So those, those were, were bad things. We are now uh, on the leading edge of solar cycle 24, and what it says to us is that there is a pulse of, of energy. There's a shift uh, in the fields of the Earth, and our bodies are, are very attuned to these fields. But the point the scientists make, and this is the point that I want to make, is that the surge of energy from the magnetic fields and from, from the sun doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be, it, it's a gift of a powerful amplifier uh, that can accelerate whatever change we focus on so if our change is on social unrest and we're riding on the streets uh, that that is one way it may manifest but it can also manifest new and innovative ways to work together to create peace peaceful solutions in the middle east uh, a peaceful soft landing to this broken economic system rather than the hard landing that that may actually uh, unfold uh, within the next few months it's all about how we choose to interpret and use this, this field of energy. So I'm saying this in response to you telling me people are feeling different in relationship to solar cycles and eclipses and solar events. I'm not surprised because we are intimately uh, enmeshed uh, in those fields as, uh, as natural bodies that, that respond to those fields. So that may be, may be to help understand why people are feeling that way. It, it, what we're finding Paul and Taz, is that um, things that have been discounted in the past, like Earth's relationship to the sun and the energy from the sun that reaches the Earth, we can see in the geologic record, in the ice cores of Antarctica, for example, we can see that the, the ebb and the flow of these solar fields for the last half million years. So we know it's not constant. It does ebb and flow. And when you overlay those readings on to big events uh, pertaining to humans, there is a, a direct correlation. And so I would expect to see a lot of social change um, just because of where we are in those fields. Those fields are what drives the cycles that our ancestors, our indigenous ancestors, knew about. So they knew that the cycles were coming, and they knew they'd bring change on the earth, and they knew that we would have to change uh, in response to earth changes. How we make the change is up to us, and that's what this book is all about. Do we, do we believe the false assumptions of science for the last 150 years uh, that have led us to the broken systems and the crises and the suffering that we're living now, or are we willing to embrace the new discoveries that give us responsible and honest reasons to think differently and to change the way that we deal with, with our problems? That's the question I think that we're asking ourselves right now. So are there cycles within cycles? Yes, there are. are there are nested cycles. There, uh, I mean, it depends on, on how small of a level you'd like to go to. We've got, 
5,000-year cycles, uh, they're great cosmic cycles. We have million-year cycles. We've got 40,000-year cycles, 21,000-year cycles, 14,000-year cycles. When it comes to uh, relationships, the relationships can be on uh, in, in matters of months. So they're called fractal cycles, and the, the point is that the conditions, not the exact events, but the conditions uh, are what repeat, and what we do with those conditions is up to us. So here's a perfect example. 1929 was the first year the modern world experienced a global economic collapse. And I keep coming back to this because it's on everybody's mind, and we could talk about anything, but this is the big one in everybody's mind right now. Um, 1929 was the Great Depression. Uh, it planted the seed of economic collapse and put into motion a pattern of energy that repeats again and again uh, until that pattern is changed. So... Uh, if, and I talk about this in, in the book, where you can see exactly where uh, 2009 was the repeat for uh, for global economic collapse, and we certainly set into motion, you know, the patterns that we're living right now. 2012 is the next fractal pattern, so we're actually living a year um, when the fractal pattern, the repeat of those conditions, is present. Doesn't mean it has to happen it means that we're a little more vulnerable and that we have to give extra care to the choices that we make if we have the wisdom to recognize the patterns. And, and for me, that's that's the value of recognizing cycles, not to, to live our lives uh, bound by the cycles, but to recognize when, when we are more vulnerable to uh, events of the past repeating within those cycles. So uh, 2012 is also uh, a repeat for uh, a fractal cycle for the beginning of global war, 1914. But it is also a repeat for the end of World War II, the end of global war. So it's interesting. We're living uh, a year when many cycles converge. Uh, the beginning of global war, the end of global war, uh, economic collapse, or, or the healing of economic collapse. It's all about the choices that we make. So my whole point is how can we possibly make those choices? How can we possibly know what policies to enact, uh, what laws to pass, who, uh, who to represent us in positions of power? How can we possibly make those kinds of choices until we understand the deepest truths of our relationship uh, to ourselves, to one another, and to the past? Uh, it all boils down to the question, who are we? That's the question I pose in the book Deep Truth, and, and that's what these uh, these scientific assumptions of the past have led us to believe one thing, and now the new discoveries are helping us to understand something else. So maybe the thing to do, what I'd like to do, can I identify five of yeah. the, the false assumptions of science? Yes, yeah, sure. And then maybe zero in. Uh, we can do this with specific examples. Zero in on, on a couple of those to give... Um, some concrete relevance to some of the ideas we're talking about. Does that sound like a plan? Yes, it sounds like a plan. All right. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Uh, yeah, when I was in school back in the 60s and 70s, and I know many of our listeners, uh, when they were in school at the same time, or if you have young people in school right now, <clears throat> we were led to believe uh, that the world we live in and our relationship to the world followed a, a series of of principles and, and science had described those principles. Um, so what I'd like to do is they're called the uh, assumptions of science. Let me share five of those key assumptions. Uh, every one of these is false that I'm about to share, but let me share them anyway. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then we can talk about uh, why they're false and uh, and what that means in our lives. So the, the first assumption is uh, it's based on the ideas of Charles Darwin. Uh, and it's about life and evolution. The assumption is that evolution explains life itself and it explains human life, where human life came from. The problem with that is that the new peer-reviewed data does not support that assumption, and especially when we get into the, the DNA studies. But the, the bottom line is that while evolution is a fact, as a geologist I've seen it in the fossil record for some forms of life, uh, it doesn't appear to apply to humans the way it's being taught, and that's a false assumption number one. Um, number two is about civilization itself. 
when I was in school, I was taught civilization is a one-time deal. It began 5,000 years ago, is evolved and advanced to the point where we are today, and we are at the pinnacle of uh, of this technology. The problem is peer-reviewed archaeological evidence has now pushed the date of advanced civilization back over twice as old is what we've been led to believe. Into the end of the last ice age, evidence of advanced technological civilization into the, the end of the last ice age. It's peer-reviewed science. It's not being taught in the classrooms or the textbooks. And it's not just a one-time deal. We're finding evidence of advanced civilizations in South America, in India, in Egypt, and now certainly in, uh, uh, in Turkey, where the oldest sites are being found. Uh, false assumption number three is consciousness itself. We were taught and been led to believe that consciousness is somehow separate from the physical world. Um, the reality is, and some of the best minds of the modern time, uh, Princeton's Professor John Wheeler, for example, a colleague of Einstein's, saying just the opposite, that consciousness is the stuff that the physical world emerges from, uh, and that if we're going to have a, a complete understanding of our relationship to the world, we have to factor consciousness into the equation instead of writing us out of the equation. Uh, false assumption number four is linked to number three, and it's about stuff. It says that the stuff uh, that we see as physical matter is separate from everything else. The space between things is empty. And, of course, uh, we all know now, if you're listening to this program, I know it's, it's no secret, that there is no empty space. Uh, there, a form of energy connects all things. The question now, the, the, the big question is, to what degree does that connection exist and to what degree do we influence it? But the fact that everything is connected is, is no longer in dispute. It's not simply not being reflected in mainstream. Uh, and the last uh, in this list is another Darwinian assumption. It's last on the list, but I think it's the one we may want to talk about the most here. Um, and I'm going to use Darwin's own language. Darwin said that nature is based on what he called survival of the strongest. It was later interpreted as survival of the fittest. Uh, that idea is so deeply ingrained into our civilization and our culture. Uh, it was planted in the late 1800s is when the idea was formed. And even though we're in the early 21st century, the world that we are living in is based upon enhancements and improvements of ideas, late 1800s and early 1900s. Consciously, and for many of us subconsciously, we have embraced this idea that life is all about struggle. Uh, and that is reflected in the systems that are breaking, including the global economic system that's based on survival of the strongest. So these five false assumptions um, are, are at the, the, the foundation of many of the crises that we face today. So my feeling, and, and the reason I wrote the book, is if we can embrace the new discoveries that show us where the thinking was wrong, then as we solve the problems, we can solve the problems, not, not just survive this time in history, but transcend, uh, become better people, have stronger families and stronger communities and hopefully uh, stronger nations if we can embrace these, these principles. If we don't and we try to solve the problems with this thinking, the consequences of the world that we have right now, we already know where it's going to lead. So right. that was what I wanted to say about these, uh, these false assumptions. Well, it created yeah, competition. Pardon me? It created competition. Well, competition, um, this is one of the places that we, it's good to clarify this, it means different things to, to different people. Um, there, there are two different kinds of competition, so I'm, let me just identify these quickly. There is a form of competition. It's called violent competition uh, in nature, and it's a form of competition where one person or a group benefits at the expense of another. So it's where a person or an individual exploits the weakness of, of another. That's, that's one form of competition. There's another form of competition where an individual or, or a, a group excel because they develop their own inherent gifts. So it's not about them exploiting the weakness of another. It's about them doing what they do and, and doing it really well. That's a form of competition as well. What Darwin was talking about was violent competition. And the problem with Darwin's theory 
is that over 400 peer-reviewed scientific studies have now shown that the optimum amount of violent competition in any environment is zero, that violent competition always is detrimental to the individual, always detrimental to the community, uh, and that nature, in fact, is based on the model of cooperation. A very prestigious journal, New Scientist, April 2008, uh, a scientist named Michael LePage did a beautiful expose on the fact that what we see in the wild is not every animal out for itself, that the cooperation plays a, a very, very powerful role in the survival of communities as, as well as individuals. So our own science now, the best science, peer-reviewed science, is telling us that, that the world around us and our bodies are based on what is called mutual aid and cooperation. But we live in a world where we've been led to believe that uh, it's a world of scarcity, and that struggle, Darwin saw the world through the eyes of struggle. So his theories were all about struggle. Um, those ideas have been embraced for 150 years, and the consequence is the world that we have today. And we know what works and what doesn't. So if we continue to try to solve the problems through that way of thinking, um, we're probably not going to solve the problems. And, and I think most of us sense that intuitively. So what this book does what these new discoveries do is they give us uh, responsible and respected and trusted reasons to implement uh, ways of solving the problems based upon what the science is telling us and what our intuition has told us you know probably much longer is that we are connected to our bodies we are connected to the earth we are connected to one another uh, we can learn from the wisdom of our ancestors and we can solve our problems without violent competition so will we embrace those principles? Uh, the best minds of our time are telling us the, the, the decisions being made in the global economy before the end of this year. Those decisions are going to determine whether or not the, the global economy collapses and people suffer or not. Uh, the war in the Middle East, everyone senses there's a push for a big war in the Middle East. Iran, Israel, the United States, uh, and there are many people that think that, uh, that war is good for the economy. Uh, they're missing the point that peace is a powerful, powerful foundation for a very uh, viable economy. Uh, I mean, and I talk about this in the book. There are a lot of advantages of of peace over war in, in when it comes to the economy. So um, all of these ideas, they sound technical and scientific. And a lot of people have said to me, Greg, I thought you were going to talk about some spiritual things. Uh, and my response to that is, is what could be more spiritual? What could possibly be more spiritual than putting into place in the, the real world around us the principles that we claim uh, in our hearts and in our minds and that many of us have studied and practiced in our homes you know, for, for a lifetime? So if we're ever going to apply these things in the real world to big problems, I think now is, is just a really good time to do it. Have you gotten any feedback? Oh, I was going to say, have you gotten any feedback from the science community? Uh, yeah, the science community is on board with the ideas. The thing about the scientists, Paula, is that they don't typically don't have a voice. You know, scientists don't have a stage with 5,000 people at an I Can Do It conference, uh, or, um, you know, they, a lot of them aren't uh, media savvy, so they don't have a way to share these ideas with a broad general audience. They share them in their small circles, and the media, uh, mainstream media, in mainstream classrooms and thinking, there's a lot of reasons for the resistance. Uh, part of it is is money. It takes a lot of money to change the scientific story of our world. You got to change the change the curricula. You have to change the textbooks. Think of all the textbooks that have been written for 150 years. Yeah, it's a big um, team effort. <laughs> well, it is, and, and I've spoken yeah. with individuals. I've, I've spoken with professors who say if they acknowledge. These new discoveries in their classroom, they feel that it invalidates a lifetime of their careers. Now, I don't see it that way. My perspective is that those people have taught what they knew to be true, what was accepted at one time in history, and they're powerful bridges now uh, to helping a, another generation into an even deeper uh, and, and more truthful uh, experience of life. I mean, it's just as easy to see it that way. It doesn't have to be seen as a negative. But uh, but there are people that are clinging 
uh, they're fighting to cling to what now is an obsolete scientific paradigm. And that would be important at any time. But now the context, we step back and we look at the big picture, and we've got some big answers that we have to come up with to some big problems in a short period of time. And if we choose to answer those problems with the, the thinking that got us into the, the crises, we know exactly uh, what the consequences of that are. So, And uh, what the, the good news is uh, uh, the academic community has really embraced this book. So there's a college course that's being taught in Canada this summer based, and this book is the textbook. Uh, other teachers are asking me to either come into their classroom or create a film um, so that we can do this responsibly. The peer-reviewed science, not my opinion, not speculation, not a lot of new thought, new age, woo-woo stuff, but this tells us what works and what doesn't. And the things that don't work, we can stop talking about them and stop doing them. And the things that do work, you know, we can really embrace them and move forward. So, well, I know, yeah. Taz and I were, um, we went to see the Dalai Lama, and he was at Stanford University, and uh, he donated money for a uh, new program on altruism. So I, I see this happening all over in universities, hmm. that they're starting to... to study peace and there's classes out there for this so I don't hope it's you know that the young people can take hold of this and take the reins and go with it well you know it, it's interesting young people are, it's difficult in some in some respects in some groups uh, of young people because there we have a generation and, and I'm going to make a, a broad generalization I know there are exceptions to this but in large part we have a generation that's been led to believe uh, that the answer is the outcome any way you can get to it. So get the right answer at any cost. Score the point on the playing field at any cost. It's more about the answer or the point than it is about the excellence of uh, of what happens within them to get to that point. And but they're forgetting uh, who they are. Well, <laughs> that, that, yeah, people are a lot forgetting. of it is from uh, you know. It's, and I'm not going to say it's right, wrong, good, or bad. I'm going to say we're on a huge learning curve. Right. is my feeling. And now that we know what we have thought in the past isn't completely accurate, now that gives us a reason to move forward uh, in and change the way we think without judging the past. You know, we did the best we could with what we had, and now and now it's time to do it again. So the, well, I, I, again, I, see I can a lot of back to, to, the, to the conditions of the world, and this is, this is what some people call the game changer. We've never faced the kinds of crises that we're facing now and the magnitude so that is the catalyst that invites us to to embrace these new ideas. And I'm seeing a shakeout of a lot of uh, negative things coming right up to our faces. I mean, things that have been hidden, things that we didn't know about, uh, even in personal relationships. I mean, they're just coming up to the surface right now. So it's like being. Well, you, you do this. I think you do this program every week, don't you? Yes. Yes. Okay, so your guests that you've had on in the recent past, how do they see? Do they see this as a, a unique time in our world, and do they see a lot of the the, the same changes oh, yeah. we're talking yeah. about? Yes. And how yeah. do they feel? What do they feel is the way for us to to go about dealing with the changes? <laughs> exactly what you're saying today. Yeah. Yeah, team oriented and just you know going forth, really working together in groups, supporting each other. There are groups out there, and I'm kind of questioning if there's a group for, you know, where you're going with the academic community, uh, you know, where people can actually climb on and work, um, you know, to get you out there to be able, I mean, I know um, your book and and everything going on, but right now, Greg, you know, you're a wonderful teacher. Well, there's only one of me. (laughs) (laughs) I was just just at a program at the University of New Orleans, I guess it was probably three weeks or a month ago. It was very well embraced, uh, and uh, that was an evening program attended by the young people. There's an entire course, an engineering course, uh, in Canada that now is being based on uh, the University of Calgary that's being based on um, on this book and these principles, and other parts of, of the U.S. as well. But, you know, it, it's interesting. There are different age groups of young people, so the languaging is different. So when you're dealing with uh, primary school, it's different than middle school, it's different than high school, it's different than college. And well, we have Skype 
we have Skype and other things that can be brought into school rooms, and um, which would keep you stationary. <laughs> and I know you probably love your journeys and everything, but you know what? I think that would reach a lot of people. And if you have some backing and and uh, you know some well, things that you're working with HeartMath right now, the global. Uh, right, you're working with Heart well, we are have, have you uh, have you had them on the program? I'm assuming in in the recent. They're coming on next week. They wanted are to come after you. Yes, they heard ah, that you were okay. going to be on our show, and they said, "Oh, let let us come in the uh, the following week." Well, so we should talk about that to to lay that foundation a little bit. Then, can we do that in the time we sure. have? Sure, yeah. sure. Yes. So, if you're listening to me on this program and and you're familiar with my work, uh, you are familiar with the Institute of, of Heart Math. Uh, if you've never heard of them, uh, briefly, they they are a pioneering research organization based right now based in Northern California, uh, just outside of Santa Cruz, Boulder Creek, California. Uh, the purpose of this organization, the sole purpose, is to explore the power of the human heart uh, in ways that are typically not acknowledged in, in mainstream, um, the power of the human heart in unconventional ways. So we all know the heart pumps blood. And uh, and that's been explored, you know, in many ways. And that may be the least of what our hearts do. There are subtle, energetic um, patterns of relationships. Our heart now is recognized as the master organ in the human body. Uh, the brain, uh, all of the functions of the brain are in response to the signals that come from the heart. And those signals are largely based in our emotions and the way we feel. So how we feel about our world, whether we feel a sense of well-being, uh, or we feel frightened, and we're in chronic uh, stress. It sends a signal to our brain, and that tells our brain what chemistry our body needs in that moment. So you can you can kind of glean the implications from that. Uh, I'm not an employee of HeartMath. My relationship with them uh, goes back almost 20 years. And there is a new research project uh, that HeartMath is has headed up. And I, uh, for transparency, I'm on the steering committee as well as the science advisory board for this project. It is called uh, the Global Coherence Initiative, GCI. Uh, The relationship between the heart and the brain is called coherence. And when we're in optimum coherence uh, is when we're in optimum health. So that's very well documented in the scientific literature. Uh, what HeartMath and Princeton University and other organizations have, have found, what they're exploring, is that the effects of heart-brain coherence extend far beyond the individual body. Uh, the fields extend uh, into the world around us and actually overlap uh, the fields of other people uh, in ways we're only beginning to understand. And they overlap and interact with the fields of the Earth. Uh, we learned about this over September 11th when the the satellites in the northern hemisphere actually detected uh, a a huge shift in the magnetic fields of the Earth that is now attributed to the outpouring of heart-based emotion and the magnetic changes in millions of human hearts in response to 9-11. That was the tip-off that that the relationship exists. So the the project now uh, that HeartMath is heading up, this Global Coherence Initiative, is uh, about exploring whether or not we can create intentionally through our hearts, uh, linking with the magnetic fields of the earth, the environment that supports cooperation, where people become less aggressive, more willing to work together, as well as healthier, stronger immune systems and uh, better, better thinking abilities. We know that it happened for a brief period of time over 9-11, and maybe if our listeners remember what the world was like for the hours and days right after 9-11. I was in Australia over that time. I couldn't even get into my own country. But there was a a true sense of family, uh, brotherhood and sisterhood that we haven't seen in a very long time, if ever, at least for a brief period of time, and then things began to change. And the strength in the magnetic field from the outpouring of the hearts created the environment that scientists attribute that family, that sense of family to. So the question is, does it take a tragedy for us to have that? Uh, I'm just going to share with, uh, end with a, a short, quick story. 
uh, I think that illustrates this point. And it, it, right after 9/11, I was in um, in France. I was doing a a seminar in a little village on the outskirts of Paris called Saint Germain. And we had uh, 3,500 people, exactly 3,500 chairs in that audience, and every one of them was filled. And early in the, the program, there was a man in the audience that became, uh, he was very agitated, he was angry. And security came in, and they were going to kick him out of off the facility. And I, I said to them, I said, I believe there are no accidents. Um, don't kick him all the way out. I said, please ask him to stand in the hallway for a few minutes. And while he was in the hallway, um, we led our group, now 3,499 people, <laughs> we led them in an experience to create coherence, heart-brain coherence in that room. And it, it's a very easy process. It took uh, less than five minutes to do it. And it, it, the techniques are uh, interestingly similar to many of our most cherished spiritual traditions as well. And maybe the, the HeartMath folks will talk about that. So after those three minutes, we brought the man back into the room. And I gave him a microphone and a translator, because my French is terrible. And I, I said... Uh, Please tell us. I asked him, tell us what you're experiencing. And this is the reason I'm sharing the story. He came back into the room, and he stopped, and he had a very strange look on his face. And he said in his mind, he still knew the reason that he was angry. He still had the reason, but he couldn't feel the emotion of the anger. And it was a, a complete disconnect for him. He knew the anger in his mind. He couldn't feel it in his heart. He couldn't access the emotion of anger. And he started to laugh. He said, it's just such a weird feeling. Here, here's why I'm sharing the story. What happened in the room with that man is possible for a planet. 9-11 proved it. 9-11 showed us how we can create that effect with the outpouring of hundreds of millions of hearts, simultaneous heart-based emotion connecting with the fields of the earth. And the question now is, can we do that without having a crisis of 9-11 to create it? The reason it's important is because when it comes to the fields of the earth, the magnetic fields in human hearts, there is no them in us. Uh, every leader of every nation, every CEO of every corporation, every human, every form of life is connected through these fields. If we can intentionally create this heart-brain coherence, uh, and share that field with the earth in a very meaningful way that our own science documents, just like that man in the room, it was hard for him to feel the anger. Uh, I think it's very hard for the leader of a nation to declare a war on their neighbor when they simply aren't feeling that emotion. They can think the thoughts, but they cannot feel the emotion. And that, uh, among other things, I think is what HeartMath We'll be sharing with you, um, they do much more than GCI. GCI is one facet of a multifaceted organization, and I think it will be a fascinating interview that you have. So um, please give them my love when they're on. Uh, do you know who you're going to interview uh, when you talk I to her? I think Howard. Howard Martin is a yes. beautiful man. He's a dear brother. He's got a, a good heart. And he and I have toured uh, the world together, sharing this message and this information. So please give my love when when you, you talk to him. Well, we thank you for the perfect ending to our show, and thank you for, oh, for yes. taking the time to be with us. Well, I want to thank you both for being such gracious hosts. It seems like a long time since we've talked. And uh, have I have to I did, do it sooner. Yeah, I did most of the talking today, but it's okay because then you don't have to work so hard. <laughs> right, we like. The <laughs> yes, like you. That's okay, one of your favorite guests, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, well I, I really, that, I, appreci I, I appreciate. I appreciate. Give me the. Well, I'm getting bounced back on my phone, so I'm gonna apologize for for speaking over you when I know it's happening. It, it's it's bounced back on this phone for some reason. Yeah. But um, I also appreciate you being the gracious host. And uh, boy, I don't know how many years you've done this program, but I know you've done a lot of years, and I really appreciate your perseverance and your dedication to, to keep it going. Well, we've tried to think back. I think it's been about 15 years. Yeah, it's true. Well, let's let people know that Greg's website is greg, G-R-E-G-G, Braden, B-R-A-D-E-N.com. Head there. Um, he will be journeying, and uh, his next destination will be Sedona, Arizona, coming around the bend on June the 7th to the 9th. And look at his website, and uh, perhaps you can join with him 
and to have an exceptional experience like everyone does when they when they go visit. So, uh, Greg, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you both so much, and um, uh, many blessings to all of our listeners as well. Thank you for supporting this station. Take good care, everyone. Thank you. you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.